Today's show is brought to you in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. In appreciation of our guests' participation, we have made a contribution to the following organization on their behalf. The Duke Eye Center, specializing in research for macular degeneration. For more information, visit dukehealth.org. One of the things that happens in crowds, happens in mob situations that we know people sort of are de-individuated. They are part of this group and people might do things in a crowd, for instance, they would never do individually. They'd be like, whoa, I can't even believe I did that or was capable of that. So the flip side is creating those opportunities for people to see each other as individuals or for people to not think about others as just part of a group or identity that they happen to belong to. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. This week we'll be talking with Randy Bly, lead singer of the multi-platinum selling heavy metal band Lamb of God, about their socially and politically informed song Checkmate. Randy is also the author of the 2016 memoir, Dark Days, which tells the incredible story of his imprisonment inside the Czech Republic over the accidental death of a concertgoer. Also joining us is social psychologist and Georgia State communications professor, Tony Lemieux. Dr. Lemieux is a frequent contributor to Psychology Today and has been contracted by the Departments of Defense and Homeland Security to study pathways to radicalization. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Checkmate, Identity, Influence, and Intergroup Conflict in America. Hello, Randy and Tony. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having us. Randy, I, I got your book over the weekend, and I was I was hoping I could ask you to expand on a couple things that jumped out at me before we uh, dive in with Dr. Lemieux. Sure. You mentioned in passing that you never lose your voice. Now, I just want to know, how is that possible given the demon whale you're able to summon two hours every night you know i'm not really sure other than the fact i was just built to do this uh, i no longer smoke cigarettes i'm a sober guy i've been clean and sober 10 years but it certainly isn't due to any um health habits for a long time you know yeah. <laughs> it, it, there's a lot of abuse of, of my body and my throat so i i don't know just good genes thanks mom and dad Okay, so it's it's not a closely guarded like vocal warm up secret. That... And, and no, I do I do a vocal warm up mm -hmm. at my coach Melissa Cross, who works with people who scream mm -hmm. and sing. I do that before whenever I record or whenever I'm getting ready to play a show. But for the most part, it's when I'm not doing my job on tour. I, I try not to talk a lot. You know. Sure. Okay. And the other thing, this is a little out of left field, but. It, it uh, concerns the Eastern Diamondback rattlesnake. Yes, what about them? <laughs> well, you said something. It was an analogy you made that left me with the impression that being bit, you know, where you live is a, a real threat. Oh, yes, of course. 
You live in Virginia? Um, yeah, I live in Virginia, but I grew up in North Carolina. And I wrote that book down in Cape Fear, North Carolina, by the coast, where I grew up and, and where okay. a lot of my family still lives. So I'm there quite often surfing and, and seeing my family. So yeah, they, they're around. <laughs> Any encounters you care to share? Ooh, well, sure. Now, if you want to talk about rattlesnakes, you got to go to Arizona. I think there's 17 different species there. Mm. I was out on a primitive living skills trip with my friend Cody Lundeen, who's a pretty world-renowned primitive living and skills and survival instructor. And we went and lived out in the in the Verde Desert for 10 days with nothing. And so have you ever eaten snake, rattlesnake? I've never I've never eaten. I mean, is it true that it tastes like chicken? No, it tastes like snake. Um I right. I uh I ate some snake out there, skinned one with a rock, because you you know, you weren't allowed to have a knife. Okay. So I cooked it on a stick over a fire, and we didn't have any seasoning because we were living as cavemen do. And yeah, it, it tasted snaky. Like you, you can get it all breaded and fried with seasoning and all that stuff, and it may okay. taste like chicken, but snake tastes like snake. It's reptilian. That's okay. <laughs> that's all I know how to tell you. That's that. vivid enough. I mean, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna arrest this topic because I could actually. I could plummet us down a serious snake hole. Yeah, a snake hole. You don't want to go down those. That's where you get bit. No, I don't. I don't. Um, anyhow, to the topic at hand. Checkmate is full of social commentary that I, I think Tony could help expand upon with examples from his research. So please, if you if you would, elaborate on what informed the lyrics. This was um, written and recorded last year. And as anyone who has their eyes open uh, is aware, here in the United States of America, there's a utter and complete polarization. We're not the only place that's fairly polarized, but everything is politicized. And, you know, I'm not a real big fan of our two-party system because I think it sort of, as, as is illustrated, if you pay attention to the news at any point in time, it's black and white, A or B. One size says... You know, these people are evil. They're all Nazis. They're fascists. They're racist. And the other side says these people are all communist and they want to destroy American values and kill babies and they hate your mom or whatever. You know, mm. it, it's A and B. And it's it's regressed from any sort of dissection of um, either side's way of treating policy issues into just almost like a sports team. You know, right. it's like they're, they're fans. You know, if you have a team and you're a real fan of a team and it's part of your identity, then even when they have a bad season, even when they're sucking, you're still like, that's my team. Right. And I think that's the uh, Republican and Democratic parties here in the United States of America today. And, and I think that the mass media has, uh, has done nothing but exacerbate uh, that sort of balkanization mm -hmm. of I am this and you are that, you know? And, and that's what that song is really about. Yeah, and and because you, well, you talk about, there's one lyric in particular, divide and conquer mm -hmm. and close them in, and which to me suggests that someone is exploiting the division. Well, of course. I mean, if you think about, to use a sports team analogy again, and, and it breaks down to economics, as, as most things do here in America and everywhere. When you go to see a football team, and, and that's your team, you root and you spend all this money to 
pay for your TV to watch it or you buy the merchandise or in some cases you pay a lot of money to go to the stadium to see the game and then you got to buy overpriced hot dogs and beer or whatever you're going to get and you're spending all this money and you're like, I am a, let's just say a, a New England Patriots fan, right? You're like, I am a New England Patriots fan and you've spent all this money mm -hmm. and you're proud to be a New England Patriots fan and you have the players who are making they're making a good amount of money, right? You, you're spending a lot of money. In many cases, money you can't afford to spend. Mm -hmm. The players are getting paid, but they're not getting, even them, they're, they're not getting paid as much as the owners, you know, the, the upper echelon people. Mm -hmm. So for me, it, it's kind of ridiculous to identify yourself with something so stalwartly when you're not really the one that is receiving the, the material benefits of this, you know, there's a great remove between you mm -hmm. and the right. president. There's a great, whoever that may be, you know? And whatever this, the, the chaos that it breeds is, is profitable. You know, if we're, if we're talking about the bottom line, 100%. Um, Tony, uh, based on, on your research, what have you seen? What have you discovered that backs that up? Well, there's a couple of really important points here. And I think Randy brings out, you know, this notion of polarization, which is which is huge. And it's always been problematic, right? People tend to form groups, they forge social identities, they know who they are, but they also know who they're not, or you know, who this other is, the 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 us versus them kind of piece. That's that's a sort of longstanding thing, of course. What has happened, I think, in recent years and really kind of accelerated is not just the mass media, as Randy points out, but social media too, mm -hmm. where you start to see the polarization amplify, I think, is certainly when you don't have access to alternate opinions or information, or if you do, it's sort of dismissed or painted in like kind of a very poor light, kind of the demonizing of this other set of opinions or values or experiences. And where I would sort of point out the sort of amplification in the social media context is it's designed and built to give you more of that, right? If you're kind of thirsty sure. for this perspective or this kind of coverage or this kind of take on the world events, not only can you find it, but it's going to find you mm -hmm. and it's going to be put in front of you. And so people are sort of not only seeking out a steady diet of this, but that becomes its its own sort of spiraling effect. And so I think about this as like, imagine you, you know, you set two snowballs off down a mountain and one kind of moves in one direction and the other, like they get bigger and bigger and they keep growing as they roll. And so we're kind of seeing this in the polarization space in a sense. But, you know, this is stuff that, you know, we've seen this in the psychology and communication and political science and all the different academic research literatures. But what we're kind of living through even outstripping a little bit of, of, you know, what we would have expected because of the sort of algorithmic enhancements and other things that have really sort of pushed people further into their camps. And once you start to stake your identity on it, once you start to say that there is a good and an evil, and it's not different variations on a concept, once you start to get into that space, it becomes especially problematic because how do you then negotiate? How do you negotiate with evil? How do you have a conversation with evil? 
So it, it makes it a lot harder to find that space. And that's one of the things I, I love a lot of the Lamb of God lyrics because of this kind of commentary and insight, but especially, you know, in this song where you're really seeing that theme amplified and sort of how it's repeated and how it's sort of, it's, it's happening. And, and, and it really is something that I think has gotten significantly more pronounced in recent years. I, I, I agree 100% with the social media stuff. And I, I've done some sort of experiments with that, you know, I, I would like to say scientific experiments, but I'm with a scientist, so I'm not going to abuse that term. Uh, Your wife's a scientist? No, I, no I, I'm on a oh, podcast right. okay. with a scientist, <laughs> so I don't want to insult the, the man who's put in all the work. I have friends with different political views in mind. Uh, and I started looking at these sort of politically centered posts that they would put up. And the more I, I looked at that, the more and more this stuff would pop up in my timeline. Um, and the more I looked at that, the more and more and more it would, it would show up. So I, I noticed, I was like, you know, I don't agree with this stuff, but I was like, man, if I did, this would just really help construct the echo chamber that I, I would live in, and it would just be confirmation bias again and again and again. And the other point he was talking about that I, I think is super important for that, that really has to be addressed is that, I mean, of course, everyone's interpretation of reality is subjective, but there is an objective reality. You know, mm -hmm. there is an objective reality, and that appears to have been thrown out the window. And I think when people are presented with facts that that go against their sort of um, this this system of beliefs they have constructed around this identity around around their political beliefs, they don't stop and go, "Hmm, maybe I'm I'm wrong." I think they experience extreme cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. And and the way that they deal with that is just to ignore the facts. Yeah. And and we've seen that a lot lately. That didn't happen. I never said that. Blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. It's like, yes, you did. These are easy, easily yeah. provable things. You know? Yeah. The, veracity is important. It does exist. But lately, it's just it seems to have been thrown out the window. And, and I certainly think social media has... Uh, has helped push that forward. And Tony, correct me if I'm wrong, but confirmation bias, that is the number one thing that scientists are trained to be on guard against, right? Um, I don't know if I'd say number one, but certainly something that we are acutely aware of and actually try to have methods and things kind of built into our processes to, to guard against. But yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the sort of ability to select and self-select into different informational spheres and, and, you know, circles, you know, really is a, another manifestation of that sort of motivated reasoning or motivated cognition. And, mm -hmm. you know, that confirmation bias where we're going to seek out things that validate our points. And I think when Randy brought up cognitive dissonance, that's like classic social psychology stuff where you think about cognitive dissonance as this pain in your head where you have these sort of competing things that can't really exist without creating some tension and you can ignore it as Randy suggests, or you can try to seek out that additional confirming information and really kind of lean into the alternate reality or lean into this other sort of space or circle. So again, all of that reflects 
when people get those identities and that sense of self wrapped up in like some of these groups and some of the positions that they'd stake, then it creates an extra layer of motivation to make sure that it's right and to make sure the other perspectives are wrong. And that that's really at the heart of, of I think, so many of the things we're sort of seeing in the, the, the dialogues and in our own social media accounts are, are, are great kind of examples of that, who engages with who and who kind of peels off and the tenor of the interactions and all that stuff is sort of on display here. Yeah. And while we're at it, could you give us a, a broad definition of what a social psychologist is is trained to do? In the biggest, broadest sense is really thinking about the world and the interaction of people and situations. And you could have some of that focus more at the individual level, but also at the group level. And a lot of my background um, had been in intergroup relations, mm-hmm. intergroup conflict in particular. And asymmetric conflict at that. Mm. So terrorism is is a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, Why is that called asymmetric conflict? Different groups, different levels of power or access okay. or, or ability. So you think about like kind of the big, big guy against the little guy kind of thing. Right. Okay. So terrorism, genocide are both sort of forms of asymmetric conflict mm-hmm. as an example, okay. but also social influence and identity. And so for me, you know, the, one of the biggest sort of areas of my research had been music and social influence and music and identity and kind of understanding how people come to know themselves and others through those sort of preferences as well. That's all part of um, my journey in social psychology and communication for that matter. I read in your bio, or maybe, maybe we were speaking the other day and you talked about how one of the things that you learned from your research for the uh, Department of Homeland Security was that ISIS actually has a whole music production wing devoted to influence and persuasion. Am I getting that right? That one's a Department of Defense supported project, Mm -hmm. which again, stems from this sort of confluence of interest in music and identity and and conflict and all of that sort of thinking about how music gets kind of brought into the mix here. And yeah, so ISIS had kind of at their peak of operations, you know, a wing of their production that was designed to create music that would then be standalone or embedded in videos. It's a really fascinating stuff. Mm. But you realize a lot of groups, a lot of social movements use and incorporate music into their sort of base of of operations and into any sort of strategic media campaigns too. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was a really important area to study. And then we were able to, to get some support to really pursue that over the, the last few years as well. To the untrained ear, would it sound like Middle Eastern folk music and just that? Or were you able to kind of piece together a larger narrative where there was a intention to persuade at work? It, it's a little bit of both. I mean, it, you know, with that music in particular, it was an interesting trajectory. But one of the things that ISIS as a group was trying to do was sort of create a more of a break from the past. So they would use Anashid as their you know, vocal performances and and you'd start to see more of those original created and they would have a, a sound to them. Mm-hmm. And one of my colleagues on the grant is a, a musicologist. And so he you know, kind of took the, uh, the, the Anashid and reverse engineered it and said, this is like the sound of ISIS, you know, I was like, and Whoa. so it was, it's pretty fascinating. We, we could nerd out on yeah. that for a while, but you know, yeah. that takes us a little off topic, but a, a friend of mine uh, works in the intelligence community and spent eight years in Iraq and 
was there for the the surge and all that and was had the split when ISIS showed up and he told me to check out some of their recruitment videos and they had a really really slick PR arm um, they knew what they were doing. They know the demographic that they're appealing to, and they know how to do it to, to make it most effective. And, and I mean, that's, I mean, certainly our, our military does that too. Um, you know, with commercials and so forth with, with their music, it's, it, music is so important in reinforcing this sort of emotional connection people have to whatever message is being advertised. Absolutely. And that, that I think creates that sense of emotion, of connection. And really in, in the context, I, you know, from an academic perspective, I have been really interested in how it prompts people to act. Does it lead people to adopt a new viewpoint or position or actually change their behaviors or their intentions to behave? That, that's been sort of a piece of the story for me, too. Catch Bleacher's frontman and 11-time Grammy Award winner Jack Antonoff at the Museum of Science in Boston on June 10th. Jack will be joining us for a live Sing for Science taping with MIT theoretical physicist Dr. David Kaiser. Jack and David will be talking about the nature of time and discuss the questions that Bleacher's song The Waiter provokes, in which Jack sings about the notion that time is going to stop. For example, does time emerge from deeper principles of physics, or is it a product of human biology and consciousness? For more information, please visit singforscience.org slash events. I want to talk a little bit about what you've learned about uh, how we identify and, and music, our identity in, in, the, in the larger sense, especially as, as we're growing up and what, mu what we want music to say about us. Based on your researches, could you tell us more about that? Yeah, in the sort of adolescent years, we find you see music, you see kind of a lens to the world. And I think, you know, with different artists and the performers, you're kind of learning and distilling something. And so you have this sort of awareness that you build and there's sort of developmental windows where that's more acute. And for some people that kind of last longer, but for many people that sort of music that they identify with in their sort of adolescent years into their early to mid twenties really stays with them where they're like, it's like you imprint, you know, yeah. and it's like, that's the stuff that you really can, you can always come back to. You might find new stuff you like, but you always go back to that sweet spot. And then we make sometimes some inferences about people based on what they like or what they listen to. So I think there's a sort of implicit sense that there's something that those musical preferences might identify about somebody. Um, yeah. When I was 11 or 12 years old, I heard the Sex Pistols for the first time, and that completely changed my life because I felt socially ostracized where I was. Um, I lived in a little tiny town. I didn't have much money. I was a weirdo, you know, just a nerdy guy, and... Someone gave me a, a copy of Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols when I was in like seventh grade. And it was the sound of my alienation. <laughs> you know, one thing I've always been curious about, I, <clears throat> and because Lamb of God has gone on to have such great success, I, your fan base is, is big enough that it probably contains a good enough a cross section so that there are people included in there who, if you had, been joined with them in a different chapter they may have been the very people you felt alienated from oh yes 
you know? 100%. (laughs) I have always wanted to know, like, what's it like if you meet a Lamb of God fan where you just kind of right off the bat, you're like, yeah, this person is the asshole that made me feel like I was on the outside looking in. Uh, I mean, really, that doesn't happen that often. I don't know if that's because I don't meet these people in a regular social setting most of the time, you know, where they're with their peer group and I don't see how they behave. Most of the time when you meet a fan, they're just happy to meet you, you know, you you can see it in, in their face. So, and also as I get older, I try and try and try not to judge people by immediate impressions or external appearances as much as possible because I hated that. And when I do that, uh, I recognize the hypocrisy of it, you know, and and I Mm -hmm. don't really like being a hypocrite. So I try not to do that that much, but you know, it's, it's something I've certainly uh, reflected on a few times. It's just like, generally, I mean, I, we have fans, so we, I've met some really crazily diverse fans. And I yeah. think that is sort of continuing now. Um, I think the diversity issues is, is increasing. So I, I'm not going to say you were the guy who would have beaten me up in high school if I meet this guy, you know, yeah. I'm a grown ass man. I, I don't know his story, you know, so I have to be open minded to people. And and that's a beautiful thing. I mean, I, I think that music is is so inclusive and and I, I need to emphasize that that is a question that I've wanted to ask for, I guess, 20 years because when I when I got to high school when I arrived as a freshman there were these clearly defined social boundaries illustrated by where people sat and who they sat with and the table where the metal fans sat couldn't have been more easily labeled as as outcast you know it mm-hmm. was like on the outermost section of where the tables were and they dressed and looked the part and there was a kid in my class whose older brother was a star on the football team and and was embraced as you might think a, a kid in the suburbs in the early 90s would be who was a football star and at any rate the kid in my class told me that his brother used to listen to Pantera in the locker room to get pumped up before the football game and and it that really chapped my hide i was like no you know you don't get to enjoy the fruits of the disenfranchise and also get the popularity and all the trimmings that come with it, you know, and he took your music. <laughs> well, it's kind of like a, a, a narrow-minded teenage sensibility that wanted to ask you that question. And that's why when you, you're in an underground band and you develop a fan base and then when you get bigger and more and more people show up, sometimes the original fans, it's very, uh, it's a, it's a very childish mentality, but if you get bigger and bigger, uh, sometimes people will be like, they have this reaction as soon mm-hmm. as you do well. And I've certainly seen it uh, with my band and other bands before. It's just this sort of, um, this sense of possession. Like, mm-hmm. like, no, these people can't listen to my band. And then once you get bigger, it's like my band is ruined and they just write you off. I'll only ever listen to the first record or whatever, you know? And that's ludicrous, you know? Yeah. I have no choice over who, who listens to my music. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's a good problem to have. Yeah. Um, while we're talking about this whole us versus them thing that comes up in the lyrics and also when it comes to identity with music and Tony, I get the feeling that that's really central to your research. Could you talk about how that is exploited? And 
Well, I think yeah, going back to the sort of us versus them theme and, and picking up a little bit of that thread about being a fan and sort of which groups and social circles you fit in, when you start to see that sort of the more expansive sense of identity, that's like the, the, the kind of ideal side of what music can do, right? Builds that yes. sense of community, like you're there, like we are all part of this group. And what I got fascinated by with the way that music is used sort of on the flip side, you see that hate rock is a sort of a concern. You see that with different terrorist groups and sort of the bad actors use of music to kind of catalyze identity and action too. Mm-hmm. And so with the good and the, the positive aspects of forging the identity, which we've been kind of talking about a bit, there's that other side where it's sort of used by bad actors. And and that's where I think there's still a question as to how important a role it, it can play and does play. But we certainly know that in the context of like uh, terrorist groups, for instance, it is something they've attended to and used deliberately to build that sense of identity mm-hmm. and emotional connection. Yeah, I for one just know that the power of the feeling of community in music just from playing shows, mm-hmm. playing live is is a massive, massive form of energy exchange that it's really hard to uh, explain to someone who, if you haven't been on stage in front of a few thousand people, it's hard to to sort of explain that that feeling, but mm-hmm. it's really intense. That's why the better a crowd is, oftentimes the more energy a, a band will put out. So yeah. there's this feeling at it, at its best and most sublime moments. There's a f- huge feeling I get on stage of of just unity and oneness with the audience. You know, um, the line between us and them blurs and disappears because I'm singing and then they're singing these words back that I wrote in a cheap spiral brown notebook in, you know, my garage. Uh, <laughs> and it's in, it's a crazy feeling, you know, it, it's wild, but it gives you this uh, feeling of well-being, you know? Yeah, for sure. One of the reasons why I started this show was because it seems like we've kind of plunged into the dark ages again and there's no shared reality I believe there is. Sounds like you guys do as well. But when there's this idea of alternative facts and things like this, I'm, I'm hoping we can we can collectively do whatever we can to have some shared version of uh, at least observable evidence, to put it conservatively. So I want to talk about some of the lyrics. You, you use this term systematic disarray. Right. To me, that kind of speaks to this idea of, um, of spreading disinformation and causing chaos. Am I getting that 100%. right? 100%. It's the same thing with the following line in that, in that song, divide and conquer and close them in. You know, um, If things settle down to a point where people are observing objective truth about occurrences that have happened, mm-hmm. you know, and they're like, this happened, and they're concentrating on that and focusing on that, then... Uh, then there's going to be a, a general consensus that something actually happened or or this is a verifiable truth. Mm-hmm. But if everything is messy and and there's pointed fingers here and there and just chaos unfolding, everybody is too preoccupied with with following the bouncing ball to pay attention to the ground beneath it. Yep. Um and and it is systematic. It, mm-hmm. It's it's chaos theory and 
there's uh, a method to the madness, as they say. Mm -hmm. Tony, what can you say about chaos and what Randy was just talking about there? Yeah, a couple of critical points here. You know, one is that it's not it's not so much that people believe all the lies, right? There is some of that. that so let, don't get me wrong. There's definitely a potential for like a direct harm of misinformation or disinformation and that people actually like believe it. But more insidious in all of this is the sort of not knowing what's true or what's not true. It's, it's sort of the undermining of trust and undermining. And we can think about that even in like the weakening of institutions, like things like, for instance, advice from the CDC or non-political actors getting sort of pulled into this politicized space and then having things cast into doubt. We've seen that with climate science. We're seeing it now with health science. We're seeing it sort of all over, but it's not just the belief in the lies, just to reiterate, because this I think is a really critically important point. It's sort of the weakening of trust in our data, in our science, in our institutions. And so when we don't know what's true, we kind of you know throw our hands up. And this goes back to our earlier point about sort of motivated reasoning and confirmation bias. It's like, mm -hmm. well, then I'm going to kind of go with what seems to feel a little more right or fits into my worldview rather than something that might cause me to have to challenge assumptions or rethink things because mm -hmm. who the hell knows anyway, right? And that's the, I think the real sort of harm. And again, this is a little bit of me sort of expanding beyond the research and the data, but like that's going to be the thing that's going to take a lot longer to undo and be harder to undo. But unless you have people sort of re-entering some shared reality or conversation, that's going to be a, a, almost uh, an impossible nut to crack without having some concerted effort to like have some ground truth. Yeah. And I meant to ask you earlier, you if you or your colleagues have talked about possible remedies for this set of circumstances we're in, about getting people to re-enter a space of shared reality and whether or not please you know, have an maybe, answer please i know <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're Listen, the smart guy that, we need you <laughs> yeah you know i think the sort of first step for any of us is to sort of recognize our position our viewpoints our, our perspectives when we tend to accept something at face value without sort of questioning or digging a little deeper you know i, I try to say okay well why would that be you know why would i sort of accept this statement but question this other one, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think like there's little heuristics like we can build in ourselves, but, but in general, it's sort of promoting a degree of critical thinking of scientific literacy, digital literacy, which is going to get tougher by the way, with misinformation and deep fakes and things seeming more real, you know, as technology affords it. Great. But, but questioning, you know, you know, and, and not, not questioning in like kind of the, the, the kind of QAnon nonsense about like, do your own research. And, and by that, what is typically meant is refute decades of scientific research and methods and watch a couple of YouTube videos. Yeah. That's not what I mean by research, but really kind of promoting our ability to question our own viewpoints and perspectives. And mm -hmm. so if we can sort of promote that value and give people the skills and wherewithal to do it, and that's sort of what I view as my number one role as an educator, then I think, you know, we get a little bit closer, but this is a big problem, man, and it, and it, ain't, it ain't going away anytime soon. I think I think one thing that we've seen with the, the coronavirus pandemic that has been problematic 
A is that because the science on this is new and it's imperfect and science is a, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a process. It mm -hmm. grows when you get additional knowledge, additional data to analyze and you gain more understanding. Mm -hmm. Science doesn't have all the answers at all the times and mm -hmm. it's, it's a process. Mm -hmm. So... That being said, I, I never thought I'd see the demonization of science that I'm seeing right now. Yeah. But it's a growing thing. And so I think it's hard for people to accept when they look to people in positions of leadership for them to say, people in positions of leadership saying, I don't know. We have to do more research. Yeah, right. You know? And I think that has been, has, has led to a lot of the conspiracy theory stuff because mm -hmm. people just don't want to accept hey, we don't have all the answers right now. I know this sucks, but we have to hang in there and wait, you know? Yeah, we talk about things like scientific proof, which is a little bit of a tough thing because what science really can do is disprove. Our methods are, are kind of set up to disprove things. So when you're trying to talk about something that can be distilled down into a very simple yes or no, it's a little bit trickier, but yet that's where people want that cognitive closure. That's where people want to know, you know, and have less tolerance for ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And so when you have something that seems like a, a really simple answer that has a great appeal to it, and when you have something that, that can sort of fill in the gaps and connect these narratives of things that just are, are really disturbing or problematic or troubling and help make sense of the world, it holds a great appeal for a, a lot of, of people. And that's, I think, where we're starting to get into the conspiratorial thinking. Oh, yes. Yeah. A ambiguity is uncomfortable, you know, about, yeah. about the, the nature or the future of your existence, even though it's uh, has always existed. You never know what's going to happen, but there's an illusion of, of knowing what's going to happen in your life as long as this is going and this is going and, and I'm set up this way. So ambiguity is intolerable uh, to a lot of people. And then that's why there's this wide acceptance of conspiracy theories, which are the security blanket of the witless. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, and Randy, your point earlier, I, which I don't think can be emphasized Enough is that science is a process. It's not a body of facts. It's not black and white. And um, getting comfortable with not knowing uncertainty is, in general, is just not something people feel great about. It's obviously that's one big change that needs to be invited. And Tony, I'm I'm not going to let you off the hook. I, I I'm still hoping for some answers <laughs> as to how we can write this ship. I I don't think you gave me one yet. I mean, do you have thoughts? Well, you have lots of thoughts. It's mm -hmm. it's really going to be critical, I think, to, to have a dialogue that is able to be more recognizing and more inclusive. Now, it's hard to really do that effectively when people can turn off and can self-select and can have a totally different reality and worldview that they're exposed to, right? So that that's going to be the challenge is how do you get people to sort of engage that space. And so mm -hmm. it's sort of finding what is the common ground? What are the things that people can come together and find some shared value, shared perspective, shared something on, you know, and, and I think things like music, things like bigger causes where people can agree on that there's something to really address. 
those are sort of anchoring points. So I, I think, you know, if we're able to really work hard to, to find those areas for common ground and promote dialogue, if not some degree of understanding, I mean, I'm not sort of Pollyannish about this at all, but to find ways to make a, a more inclusive sense of self, you know, a shared, a common in-group identity. So right now we have this sort of real polarization of us versus them. But if you can find more superordinate issues where people come together on that, again, this falls right from the social psychology literature. But when you create those shared superordinate goals that people have to work together towards, they have to cooperate towards, then you got a better shot at it. But again, it's not going to be a cakewalk. And Randy, what are your thoughts on uh, what you think is going to help deliver us from our current state of affairs? Well, (laughs) I've come to the conclusion that there's questions that aren't being asked. And part of it, you know, personally on on my part, I I have to watch for my biases and and, uh, my judgmental nature, as it were. But when people think very, very differently about reality than you do in certain things. I think it's important if you have the chance to ask these people, what makes you think that way? Why do you feel this way? Instead of just saying, you're a fucking idiot or writing them off. Because there's a myriad of of factors that have brought people to this system of belief. It's not just like one day they woke up and, and decided, I'm going to totally distrust science something has brought them to this point. So for me, I think that is achievable on an individual level only. I didn't, and we were talking about uh, crowd psychology or, or group psychology. You know, um, I've been in large, I, my, my job is to be in front of large crowds. I see that. And, and then also I've been in large crowds and some rather contentious situations where the group mentality has taken over, it's it, it's impossible to change the mind of a mob, right? It's mm-hmm. impossible when you, if there's a riot going on, you can't walk into the middle of a riot and say, hey, everybody, what are you <laughs> writing about? This isn't right. You shouldn't do this. You know, you can't change the mind of that mass organism, which is what it becomes. Um, but you, if you can talk to an individual and say, why are you angry? What are you upset about? What is causing you to express yourself in this manner? And have an open conversation and maybe present your viewpoint and an alternate view to what's going on. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can meet in the middle somewhere. And that yeah. can only really happen on, a, on an individual basis. Like I can get up and uh, spew my... Um, my ideas of of reality in front of a crowd. And it will either be sort of people that already agree with the the kind of things that I I believe in, and and thus I'll be preaching to the converted, or Mm -hmm. it's going to be a bunch of people throwing, you know, bags of dog shit at me or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know? The, The crowds, it's impossible to alter the mentality of a crowd, But you can engage with an individual. So I think it's important for people to have individual conversations, uh, one-on-one. And that gets harder and harder, I think, as people retreat more and more into their phones and and their use of phones to communicate, you know? And 
I, I have to ask, was that sentiment, which in, of course is an admirable one to connect with people one-on-one, I got that at a point in your your memoir, and uh, there was this one point where you're talking about uh, your cellmate was Mongolian, and you guys had no shared language, but it, I got the impression that you just sort of had an, an aha moment that you needed to connect with this person and try and learn one another's language. Does that experience really inform how certain you are that that's going to be the thing that will hopefully heal a lot of these divides? I mean, I think, I don't know, going to prison in the Czech Republic, uh, it, it certainly had an impact on my life. I, I would, I, I'm entirely grateful, though, that I went through there as a sober person. Uh, th- that happened when I was sober. And that getting sober really is what changed my mentality uh, mm-hmm. to a much larger degree than ever getting arrested or, or going to prison or anything because I had already sort of been in a, a prison of my own making of, of alcoholism, you know? And um, my mind during my active drinking was uh, focused, um, but everything was revolved around alcohol, but it, ancillary to that, it, it was... It was a mind that did not have the clearest perceptions of the world around it, mm. you know? Um, of course. Uh, it, which expressed itself in, in anger a lot of ways. So when I got sober, I realized, hey, I have to exist in this world. I have to figure out a way to exist in this world without drinking in order to cover up my discomfort at the fact that the world is not behaving in the manner that I think it should, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I started to come to a place of acceptance that in, instead of being angry because the world isn't behaving the way I want it to while I'm trying to control it with my mind like Darth Vader or something, I had to to come to a point of acceptance of like, hey, you know, everybody's just a human. And and I started speaking to people much more openly. Um, yeah. And so that was a huge shift in my personality that opened me up, you know, I mean, I've always been a pretty nice guy. um, Alcoholism just kind of buried that for a bit. (laughs) Yeah. No, I understand. I think though, I I do believe that individual conversations are the the only way we're going to effect mass change uh, as paradoxical as that may seem. No, I, it, not at all. And, and I mean, I think it's overwhelming because individual conversations can be tedious and that is the very nature of of the scientific process right tony i mean it's just painstakingly slow and you've got to you wait till you draw conclusions and not only is it sort of takes time but it's all also multi-layered and i think the conversation really is getting at like yeah you need that sort of individuation um it's again, tricky to create the conditions under which that happens. And that's where, you know, going back to the point about social media sort of pushing people further into their own little networks and worlds is is problematic because it's like, man, if there's any hope of getting people together, you can't have it if like you've got one whole segment just totally leaving not only the conversation, but leaving the forum in which the conversation happens. They're not even available to be part of it anymore. Yeah. So we got to focus on those who are who are willing to uh, yes. at least stay in the arena. Got to start there. I'm glad we got yeah. smart guys like you working on that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, this has been great. Thanks for coming on the show. Awesome. Thank Thanks, man. 
Stay up to date with all things Randy and Lamb of God at lamb-of-god.com. And for more information about Tony's work, follow him on Twitter at AF Lemieux. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and brought to you with support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, media by Ottavio Media, and press by TCB Public Relations. Special thanks to Maria Ferrero and May Leinhart for their help with today's episode. Please be sure to check out our other episodes and subscribe to the show. Thanks for listening.